He at the risk of sounding critical, judgmental, or just plain obnoxious, which is, I want you to know, this is not my intent, but I do want to begin today's episode with a question. So here's the question. Are you ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now, before you answer too quickly, allow me just to say that there may be more to this question than meets the eye. Uh, the, the truth is, most of us listening to this podcast today, we want to respond immediately, like with a great big N-O, no, uh, anything that places the words shame and gospel in the same sentence, uh, we're adverse to. After all, we'd say, listen, the gospel is the good news of salvation through the work of Jesus Christ. It's the heart of who I am. It's why I exist. It's why we exist as a church. Uh, We're called to share the gospel far wide to the ends of the world. Ashamed of the gospel? Absolutely never. Yet I have to ask, might there be a deeper and more nuanced meaning to the Greek New Testament word ashamed, which, when examined honestly, does uncover, dare I say it, some sense of shame on the part of the church and Jesus' followers when it comes to the gospel? So today, uh, in our episode, I want to investigate this question with you. I don't want to work from a critical or shake your finger kind of perspective, but more from a reflective. And uh, I'm just speaking personally, kind of kind of this personal reflection. So I'm asking myself this question. Luke, how about you? Is there some place in you that actually does consider the gospel from a shame perspective? And, and if so, what does that mean? More importantly... If this perspective does exist within us or within the church, how do we come up above it in such a way as to truly live as image bearers of God and signposts to his grace through the gospel? Today, I want want to re-enter the sixth chapter of the book of Daniel with you. Uh, We meet the gospel spoken through a man that probably should have been ashamed of it, but but he wasn't. In fact, his gospel proclamation may go down as one of the boldest in all of history. I'm going to tell you one of the things that kind of got me thinking about this question of shame and the gospel. It's, it's actually an older book that I have it placed in my library in the don't forget about this book section. This is one of my go-to books whenever I want to spend time just thinking about the tension that exists between, uh, how would we say it, just living in this world and yet not being of this world. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the names Will Williman or Stanley Hewerwas, but both are men, uh, I believe, whose depth of thinking in the church uh, is hard to match. So back uh, in the year 2014, the two co-authored a book that uh, actually kind of hit a nerve among Western theologians. Uh, the title of their book is Resident Aliens. The subtitle is Life in the Christian Colony. So at the time the book was being written, Williman uh, actually served as chaplain at Duke University. Uh, I believe that his his seat at the university gave him kind of a bird's eye view into cultural changes that uh, were already in motion here in the West and have accelerated in our day. So of particular interest to Williman and Hirwas in this book is the radical nature of the church as what they call a countercultural colony. I love that language. Think of your church as a countercultural colony. So their contention is that the church is at greatest risk when it loses its place as an oddity in our world. And I love this quote. Just listen to this. 
Here's what they write. They write, we believe that many Christians do not fully appreciate the odd way in which the church, when it is most faithful, goes about its business. We want to claim the church's oddness as essential to its faithfulness. So what the authors are alluding to is the reality that the gospel was never intended to fit into this world's story. Instead, the gospel calls us out of the world's story and into the story that God has written for his tribe, both collectively as well as for each one of us individually. It's what makes me qu- this question, I think, so intriguing, if I can ask it again. Think about it. Just get it in your head. Are you ashamed? Am I ashamed? Luke, are you ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Again, remember, I don't want you to answer too quickly. Here, here's why. I think it has to do with the meaning of the word ashamed. We read the word, and, and of course, in the context of Romans chapter 1, it's verse 16. And we know that Paul's making this bold statement about the gospel. He, he wants to go to Rome. He's recognizing the gospel is the only thing that has the power to change people's lives. Rome, of course, thought otherwise. It's one of the most sophisticated cities and cultures in the world. Romans prided themselves on what? On rhetoric, logic, political machinery, might. The world wasn't changed through the operations of religion, but through the secular and the mundane. And what Paul recognized was the temptation to the church of becoming like the world, of adopting the weaponry of rhetoric and politic. And he's shouting to the church, these weapons are without power when it comes to changing hearts. So it's in this context that Paul declares, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. So, so let's ask at a deeper level what is and what is not meant by this term, ashamed. We need to. And, and I say that because I believe that we hear the word and almost immediately equate it with the idea of denying or feeling shameful about the gospel in a way that would cause us to, to, to no longer participate in a witness to our belonging to Jesus. Um, this is something most of us would say, no, I, I'd rather die than deny. But, but is that actually what Paul means here? I, I believe when you take a deeper dive into the word, uh, you'll find that it has a more subtle meaning. Listen to this. The term ashamed in the Greek New Testament is epiaskunomai, and it's a conjunctive word. That means it's made up of two words. The words are epi, literally translated upon, and askuno, taken from iskus, which literally translated means disfigurement. Put the two together and you have the idea of having upon yourself a disfigurement. So I want you to think about this for a moment. When I have a disfigurement, what follows might be a sense of shame. Why? Because I don't look like everyone else around me. I stand out. I don't fit in. So in turn, what do I do? I, I might seek to hide my disfigurement or cover it up rather than to have people look at me and judge me for being different. Now, apply this to the message of the gospel. What does it mean to suggest that the gospel is disfigured. Well, what we're saying, it's, it's different. It's different than the message of the world. It doesn't look the same. It doesn't sound the same. It doesn't fit in. So now that the question becomes, what do you do with it? To be ashamed of the gospel does not mean that I deny it, but it might mean that I seek to cover it up or to hide it. Um, I've come to believe there's about three 
really main ways that people do this in their lives today. I'm going to ask you just to follow me on this. So first, there's times when people and even churches try to uh, enculturate the gospel. That is, they try to make it sound like it does fit into our culture. Uh, language is used, in, in my opinion, uh, to suggest that, listen, uh, this, this Bible, uh, it fits our world. Uh, a great example of this is Francis Chan's book, Erasing Hell. If, you, if you've read the book, Chan recognizes that the biblical idea of hell and a God who would send people to hell, it doesn't exactly fit into the cultural narrative of our tolerant world. So, so what do a lot of churches do with hell? Chan points out that, that some try to make it seem less dramatic. People will use language that says, well, rather than hell being a place of, of eternal torment, maybe it's actually just the difficulties people who sin face in their lives here and now. In the end, many suggest literally all will go to heaven. Hell is simply experienced on earth. Effectively, Chan correctly analyzes this view to be the equivalent of trying to put lipstick on a pig. Hell doesn't sell well in our culture, so put a little makeup on it. Cause it to become a better fit for our culture. That, that's what I mean by enculturation. Uh, when we do that, we lose the power of the gospel. So a second way people in churches practice their shame for the gospel is through what I call reductionism. Reductionism is what happens when people seek to avoid the teachings of Scripture that don't fit our culture. Just simply exclude them from conversation. So in reductionism, people in churches use terminology that kind of follows a, a formula of suggesting that, well, there's just too many things in the Bible we really don't understand, we can't be sure of. So rather than be entangled in these, reductionists suggest that we simply acknowledge what we really don't know. However, there's a few things we can be sure of. Reductionists suggest that these are the things we need to talk about and proclaim in the world. In essence, re reductionism allows people to just avoid any topic in the Bible that doesn't fit our culture or its narrative. Simply suggest that these are issues we don't understand or are uncertain of. And now the Bible is just reduced to a few things that do seem to fit our culture. And then finally, there's what I call redactionism. Redactionism is different than reductionism. Um, in that it doesn't seek to avoid or feign ignorance about the Bible's non-cultural teachings. It simply changes them to make them fit. Uh, recently, Billy Hallowell, a journalist for the online news service Faithwire, provided, I, I think, a great example. It's extreme, but it's a great example of redactionism. So his article takes us to modern-day China, where, where today a project is underway to actually rewrite the Bible. I don't know if you knew that, but... Um, what the Chinese are doing is let's let's rewrite the Bible to support the atheistic posture of the Chinese Communist Party. How in the world are you going to get the Bible to fit atheism? Well, Hallowell gives an example of redaction in China. So he points us to the familiar story of the woman caught in adultery, John chapter 8. If you remember the story, you remember that. There's this moment when Jesus drops down on his knees and he's writing something in the sand while calling out to the woman's accusers. Let the one who's without sin cast the first stone. You remember that, right? So in the biblical text, there's no indication as to what Jesus might have written in the sand in that moment. However, the communist Chinese have redacted the text to indicate that when Jesus bowed down, the words he wrote were, ready for this, quote, I am a sinner, 
too, making him more compatible with Chinese culture. So I think about it this way. While an atheist Jesus might sound like a far-fetched example of what happens when redaction is present, the practice is actually pretty widely used. And not just at academic levels. It's used in personal conversations when people intentionally call passages or scenes in the Bible in a way that changes them just enough to fit in. The problem is Jesus, he didn't call us to fit in. The gospel is to use the term iskos. It's disfigured. Or is it the other way around? You know, every Christmas season, I love being able to quote the words of John the baptizer, calling out to the people in the wilderness. John, of course, is quoting Isaiah 40, Three, when he says, he, the one that is coming, will make the hadas or the way straight. What's John saying? He's saying that sin has disfigured the world. It's caused it to become like a spine that's bent to the point it's ready to break. The world's not right. And there's only one and only one thing that can set it straight. And that is Jesus Christ and the gospel message of salvation through him. Interestingly, the case is made here for the reality that while the gospel seems disfigured, and unlike the culture that we live in, what is actually disfigured is the world itself. The only way that people's lives can be made straight is through a gospel that's not culturized, reduced, redacted. Hope, it comes from the gospel alone, which is where I believe we find ourselves at the end of chapter 6 in the book of Daniel. Remember with me last week, we met Daniel at this point. He's been rescued by God from death in a lion's den. I get chills. I really do. I get chills when I read this section of Daniel. I think about the parallels it shares with Jesus' resurrection recorded in the Gospels. So following this miracle, something happens that's actually pretty easy to just skip over. And, and as you're reading the book of Daniel, just kind of zip by it. Uh, namely, the Gospel proclamation given by a pagan king, King Cyrus of Persia. To me, this is fascinating. As you read through the Bible, there are a number of events and occasions where God uses a most unlikely character to proclaim his word and his will. Numbers 22, what does God use? A donkey, literally a donkey to convey his message. Mark chapter 1, a demon. A demon? Yeah, the demon proclaims, you are the Holy One of God, Jesus. And then there's my favorite allusion in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 3, where Jesus, he's talking to the teachers of the law who trust not in him, but their own capacity to perform the law towards their own righteousness. So pointing to this configuration of stones on the ground, Jesus says to them, listen to this, he says, God is able to raise up out of the stones children of Abraham. So in one sense, Jesus is saying, these rocks would do a better job of proclaiming my life-giving message than you who are actually sons of the covenant. The point is, here's what I want to say, is that in the past, God has used unlikely instruments to proclaim his gospel. King Cyrus in the book of Daniel is one of them. Here's what we know. Cyrus, in a short period of time, has recognized the faith that lives inside of Daniel. It's compelling. It's a lived out faith. It can't be mistaken. It in no way seeks to fit in with the culture. Cyrus has been impacted by Daniel to the point that he's the first person in the lion's den praying that, to quote scripture, Daniel's God has been able to rescue him. Now, upon finding Daniel alive, the king acts. Last week we talked about this. The king has recognized the trap that's been set for him by his consultants. Now he actually reverses that trap and 
King Cyrus traps them with a decree that actually overturns the first one that forbade Daniel from praying to his God. Now follow this. When, when King Cyrus begins to issue his new decree, the words that come out of his mouth are not his. Okay, so they are his, literally. But it's God who is causing Cyrus to become one of the most unlikely proclaimers of the gospel in the entire Bible. I'm going to read these words. I want you to follow along whether you have your Bible with you or just want to listen. I'm in Daniel 6. I'm going to read verses 26 and 27. Lord, we ask that you give us some insight here. So it reads as follows. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, this is King Cyrus speaking, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. Listen to that. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. Uh, the, again, what is he saying? Cyrus is calling out to all of Babylon and Persia uh, that God has rescued and delivered him. So I don't know about you, but here's what this scripture does in me. It reminds me of the power of the gospel to change lives. Pointedly, there's nothing on earth more powerful than the words of Jesus. And no wonder Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. Paul would add, please don't diminish it. Don't culturize it. Don't reduce it. Don't redact it. Just bring it to this disfigured world that we live in. The question is how? How do we bring the gospel to people in our families, our neighborhoods, where we work, places uh, where we go to school, where we play? It's a big question, and I wouldn't pretend to be able to answer that in this single podcast episode. I do want to suggest a couple of things that I think are applicable. First, I just want to encourage people to just dump most of what you have in your head about evangelism or witnessing. Just put it in the garbage can. I know that sounds dramatic, but I'm serious. When I talk to people about what it means to share the gospel, I watch them. I watch people tense up visibly. You know why? Most of the images of witnessing evangelism we have are terrifying. Luke, you want me to do what? Walk up to a complete stranger? Start pumping the Bible at them? Ring doorbells? Uh, These images send us running, and they're not right. Just dump them in the garbage can. Secondly, I'm going to ask you to recognize how relational our sharing of the gospel is. I love the description one theologian gives. She gives the the, the term incarnational. She says our witness is incarnational in the sense that it embraces the whole of what it means to give ourselves to people that we do life with. You know, most gospel sharing happens with people that we come to know. When we get to know them, we begin to earn the right to communicate, not at them or to them, but with them, which is what I love about this little book I want to introduce you to. My third thought for you today is simply this, invest some time in learning how to have conversations about faith. In 2016, Jimmy Scroggins and Steve Wright wrote a little book that I think is a real gift to the church. Its title is Turning Everyday Conversations into Gospel Conversations. Sounds simple enough, but I know it's not. Not for most of us. Uh, Talking about the gospel, about God, does not just come naturally. Uh, But it doesn't have to be hard. What I love about their book is the path it takes towards recognizing there's some very simple things we can do in our conversations with people to turn conversations toward the gospel. 
Sometimes it means just learning how to ask the right question in a way that opens up a door. Uh, some, sometimes it's just listening for the right moment to ask permission, to change the channel from talk about the weather and sports to something that will matter for eternity. Again, it's not my goal today to provide an exhaustive approach to witnessing, but to encourage our development of conversations that point people to a word that impacted a king and can change lives today, a word of which we never need to be ashamed. Well, listen, that's it for this week's edition of God Size Living. I love being able to spend this time together with you. I, I pray it's beneficial to you. I'm going to have you in my prayers this week. I, I pray that you'll keep me in yours. So until next time, I pray that you will have a God-sized week.